Hello everybody and welcome to this the wonderful podcast presentation that is What's the Story Podcast. My name is Danny Murray. We are ESO, ESRFC, the Rovers, the Rovers, the Rovers. Who am I? I am Graham Merrigan. This is the 195th and final edition of What's the Story podcast because Mero has gone. He's reached peak levels of being insufferable. And I can't we take are ESR, it anymore. ESRFC. God's sake. Are you, are you done? Are you done? Yeah, you I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. Okay, I'm done. good man. Mero, uh, I'm done. I'm done. Shamrock. Rovers, where Ireland's number one. Right, I'm done. I'm done. Sorry, I'm done. Sorry, I'm Graham Erigan. That's Dan John Murray, episode 195 of WTS Pod. How are you, Danny? I was great up until about 90 seconds ago. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is WTS 195, and uh, we have a doozy for you, as always. We, the, the, the guest that we have on is uh, he's a recording guest on this podcast, as are a lot of our guests, because they don't become guests, they become friends, and uh, yes. it's it's, uh, it's always a pleasure to have him on. Before we do that, you might have noticed, might have noticed the intro was a little bit different, just a, a little nod to the late, great gay born. Uh, so we thought we'd go with To Whom It Concerns, the uh, iconic Late Late Show intro music from when uh, Gabo was the host of the longest running weekly chat show, I think, is it? Is Ever, that yeah. yeah, so uh, yeah, there we go, that's that one. And uh, we talk a little bit more about Gabe with our guest this week. Um, he uh, shares a nice story or two about the man himself. So without any further ado, uh, we are delighted to welcome back one of the finest men to have left these shores and made something of himself elsewhere. Uh, I, I believe he's making his hat-trick appearance with us, actually, this time. So that's that's even special again. He is not just... Our man in Stockholm, but he's your man in Stockholm too. He's the wonderful Phil O'Connor. Phil, thanks, Emil, for popping on to us yet again. Thanks very much, lads. Jesus, I, I, I'm touched by that now. I'm also starting to realise that you're, you're, the list of guests is, it must be running out now if my name is up for the third time already. Oh, you know? yeah. Yeah, it's, listen, it's man. Desperate times. Yeah, I'm also guessing that Christy Moore was busy, but that's all right. We don't have to talk about that. <laughs> well, 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 you're, you're very welcome to uh, the the episode where we celebrate Shamrock Rovers winning the FEI Cup for the 25th time. Thank you. Yeah, no, do you know what? I'm not that kind of football supporter who sort of begrudges other football supporters' joy, even though I hammer you over that wonderful Bose-coloured wheelchair that you have at the moment, Graham. <laughs> but I, I, I really, no, to be honest, like my dad is from Inchicore and he would have grown up as a Pat supporter. And then I grew up on the north side of town and it was Bohemians and that kind of thing. And we had neighbours who were into shells and that kind of thing. So, you know, I actually, I just love it when Dublin players and when Dublin clubs go well. I mean, less so for people in Danny's part of the world, but then they don't play football down or whatever don't, bog hole he's in anyway, they, you know? They don't. They they look at you weird if you don't pick the ball up with your hands and try to kick it off. It's, it's like you know they play some game with a, with a stick and a chicken or something oh. like that. <laughs> but, uh, Did no. you get to watch the cup final? 
Uh, I actually saw the end of it. I saw the extra time and I saw the penalties all right. So it was, uh, let me see, you see, the weekends are always busy. I work with a lot of sport, as you know, you know. So on mm. Sunday, I was covering the end of the Swedish league and then I was covering two uh, matches in England. And then Sunday is just like, it's just a mess of family and football and all sorts of things. So by the time I got back into the house, I got to see the extra time. I was delighted. Like there was about six minutes left. Uh, so I saw the two goals and then I saw the extra time and everybody's going, you know, George Hamilton's on the telly going, oh, extra time, players hate extra. I fucking love it. I missed the whole thing, you know? So, uh, and then penalties as well and it goes to lottery. But I have to say, Robert. I love, it. I, love it. I love it when my team isn't involved, but my Jesus, that was traumatic on Sunday. Yeah, no, the only thing I could think about in the last sort of 10 minutes, especially, you know, Dundas goal and everything else like that, I was just thinking of you and I was thinking of your dad and I was thinking of Buzz O'Neill and everybody I knew, you know, I mean, I don't know as many people who support Dundalk, but apart from perhaps Andrew McGann, you know, but, yeah. uh, you know, I was looking at, I was thinking of all the Rover supporters, the people you'd be winding up from one end of the year to the next and through the sort of derby games, the league and that kind of thing. But when it comes to the cup, I, I like, I don't care. It was like when Pats won the cup a couple of years ago and it was the first time since Jesus was a boy kind of thing that they won it, you know, but, uh, <laughs> You know, and I think it actually makes it even more special because I've seen some, like the Women's Champions League final last year, like Leon won it, they hammered Barcelona and the game was over by half time. And, you know, and that's great. Like, you know, if you're a fan of the, the Leon, Olympic Lyonnais women's team, that's great. It must be great for you, that kind of thing. But it must be so much better to, to you know, to, to do it to Dundalk, to the league champions, one of the best teams ever to do it in the League of Ireland, it has to be said. But to do it in that style, you know, and to, you know, to show that kind of character and to have those players out on the field. And do you know what it actually gave me? It gave me hope for next season at the, the end of that yes. like when Rovers are lifting the cup I was looking forward to 2030 bring it to me can we start it on the 2nd of January like you know that's, that's exactly awesome. I, I, the break that's is too long as well the, the well, thing about this the thing, sorry lad the thing about this is that uh, this season and this cup final and Ro- Rovers winning the cup final as much as it kills me to see Graham Erdogan this happy is that suddenly it looks as though clubs can land punches on Dundalk do you know what I mean like, no, nobody expected Rovers to have as good a season as they had, let's be honest. Nobody yeah. expected Bowes to have as good a season as they had. Well, you see, so, the, the thing is, like, it, 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 you're in a situation there where you're almost talking about also Rans Dan, right? Because we all knew how strong Dundalk were going to be, and we were wondering who was going to challenge. And a lot of people would have expected Cork to do that, but they shot the yeah. bed, right? Apologies to our friends at Cork. I said there's probably no listeners in Cork for this podcast anyway, but we'll risk we got, the We got rid of them a long time ago. Good stuff, good <laughs> stuff. So we can, we can speak freely here. But, like, you know, I don't know. I was talking to Graham a little bit, like, you know, in, in the background throughout the summer, right? So what, happens, what has happened over the summer is the League of Ireland and the FAI had this pilot project going on where they were broadcasting games online outside the country right and the commentator from the, for those things from a bunker uh, at Vatahamnan in Stockholm was yours truly right Aramana Stockholm O'Connor is sitting there and now there's fellas commentating on Olympic handball on one side of me and ice hockey friendlies on the other side of it and I'm sitting there shouting about fucking Dundalk and Cork City right now I don't know this could be, this is what I was told where do you do that Phil do you go to a studio uh, I go to a studio, yeah, and what they have is they have one bloke with one camera, right? And then I'm sitting in the studio, and then there's another fella sitting in the control room, and the fella in the control room is sitting there doing all the graphics. So he puts up the score, and he puts up the start and 11, and that kind of thing. He does the replays, and every time the cameraman in Oriel Park wants to change the camera angle or move anything or anything else like that, we have to play a replay, and then he zooms out really, really quickly, and then we go back, and it's a great wide shot of a goal kick or whatever else like that, you know? So, But the, the market research apparently showed that only fans of Cork City and Dundalk 
Talk would be prepared to pay for games that we streamed online, right? And that was how, so I wound up commentating a whole lot of games for Turner's Cross, and that was absolute death because Cork were terrible, you know? And you're sitting there now, I mean, Cork has some good players, but the the second half of the season we started, like, it was over for them, you know? And you're sitting there, it's like, it's basically like sitting there, sort of, you know, writing those funeral reports that are going to happen now that Gay Bourne's dead, kind of thing, you know? There's there's no joy to be had out of this at all for the most part, you know? Now, the Dundalk games were a little bit better, but again, they told me in the beginning, like they sold it to me as, you know, gold and green fields going, oh, there's going to be loads of games, loads of games. And they couldn't get their act together because like the clubs didn't know what to expect and the league didn't know what to expect. And then we had a certain, uh, or a series of incidents with, a, you know, um, a named person in the Football Association of Ireland. You may have heard of his trials and tribulations. <laughs> and that just, that threw like an enormous spanner and a couple of shoes and a tie into the works, you know. So it was really hard to get the whole thing done. But, you know, it was brilliant to, like for me to follow it that closely and to be sort of involved in in the League of Ireland in a way that I haven't been in 20 years was brilliant but what I hope now and what they're saying is they're going to extend it next year so like I'd love to do nothing but sort of commentate on the League of Ireland because uh, and, and sorry Dan to get back to the point that you were originally making I went rambling off like Grandpa Simpson yeah, there grand. it's, don't worry but, about it it's not like you Phil it's, no, no that's not like me no. <laughs> this is why I'm not allowed on any other podcast I'm only allowed on here when you just want a four hour <laughs> epic like fucking Joe Logan, like. but the problem is that like it's and again Graham you were saying about the season being too short and the gap being very long right in Sweden they usually describe it as the league finished here on Saturday and on Sunday the longest pre-season in the world begins because we're waiting until next fucking April till the snow melts you know and teams will go to Spain and they'll train and they'll cover games but that's that's the phony war what we want is when the league kicks off or when you know the league cup kicks off or whatever and it's difficult because in Ireland you don't have that many elite clubs and that's why the All-Ireland League is such a great idea they don't have the financial muscle to contract players for more than 40 weeks for the most part Dundalk do Rovers have certain players on longer contracts but you know UCD don't uh, Finn Harps don't uh, probably cork themselves most of their players are out of contract already so until we can get to a stage where it's sustainable a few more clubs Cliftonville uh, Glentoran these guys in the north that'd be brilliant we could start a few weeks earlier and give us that sort of competitive football and the other thing was that you know UCD weren't great Finn Harps weren't great like the bottom of the table really wasn't you know we need to get in enough elite teams to really make it worth watching week in and week out it was close this year because Cork for all their trials and tribulations were still a good side and they still played relatively good football at times Bows were decent Rovers were brilliant to watch I, like, I'd crawl over my own mother to watch Jack Bourne play football uh, as, as would Mr. American he'd probably crawl over just before me um, Dundalk were worth watching it would have been good to see like you know Shells be up there um, Drogheda missed out now a little bit that kind of thing but I think we're heading in a decent direction you know but I mean I've been waiting a long time for this to happen but I think over the next two or three years I think we're leaving the dark ages now this is like leading his people out of the desert you know that, you know. finally I can start start to see there's something good happening in Irish football and imagine that it sort of started and finished with Shamrock Rovers winning the FAI Cup I never thought I'd hear myself say that but come here Phil you know um, the way McCarthy is picking Jack Bourne in one breath and then in second breath he's saying he needs to he needs to get out of Rovers why is he picking them then well, there's one of these things that, you know, there's this idea that all of a sudden, and we've seen this happen with quite a lot of players, right? That all of a sudden, if they move to England, the week after they move, they make it into a squad, right? And it's the same thing here. Sweden, Denmark, Finland, Norway, they'll be quite similar in terms of size, population, etc. to Ireland. Different football cultures, but quite similar, right? I was making the point that one of the, the sort of most famous football journalists in Sweden is a fellow called Robert Lowell. Myself and himself are very friendly. And every now and again, we go for pizza and talk shite. And my point would 
of being grave. That why play Premier League players against Gibraltar, against Belarus, against whoever, right? Because Dundalk, Shamrock Rovers, and Bowes, the players that you can pick out of, they should be able to beat these smaller nations, right? Uh, they should be able to give Lithuania a game. They should be able to give you know Sweden a game. They should be, well, maybe not Sweden if they're going to play all their decent players, right? So to me, to say that Jack Bourne needs to get out of Shamrock Rovers, where has Jack Bourne been? Jack Bourne has been to Manchester City. He's played for a team that I can never pronounce in Holland. Uh, I, I keep calling him Camembert. Uh, he's played for Old Close. <laughs> yeah, he's played for Hibs. He's been like he's been around the place, right? Jack Bourne. That actually sort of you know. I would say that that limited his development because of not because the football he was playing, but because of the environment that he was in, and that he has taken huge steps off the field in sort of finding himself again at Shamrock Rovers. Now, the idea somehow that Shamrock Rovers are playing at a lower level than the Faroe Islands—that's nonsensical. So, what what Mick McCarthy should actually be doing is he should be picking his squads for the challenge at hand. If you are playing against Spain. All the fucking boys need to be there. Bring back Robbie Keane, bring back Roy Keane, because we're going to need them as well, right? But if you're playing against the Faroe Islands, pick, you know, 15 lads from the League of Ireland. You know, at the end of the day, I'm not all that interested in, in you know, qualifying for the World Cup, brilliant. Qualifying for the European Championships, that's brilliant, right? But you should almost be able to do that. If you can't have a pool of, of 100 players that you can call on, then you're doing it wrong. Right. For me, the most important thing is to have a breadth and a depth to Irish footballers. We need to have them playing, you know, in Norway. We need to have them playing in France. We need to have them playing in the Netherlands, in Germany, wherever. We need to broaden their horizons and produce fellas who can play the games and make the decisions on the pitch. And, you know, the clubs that they're playing for in Ireland, you know, like I would have said there's a very, very high standard of Dundalk. I'd put Dundalk up against the best in Sweden's Allsvenskan. And I'd say that Dundalk would come out of it. They'd probably win four out of ten two-legged ties against them at the moment. Now, you're talking about a league where there's millions of euros involved in TV rights alone for the Swedish league. Fellas are getting paid 10,000 euros a month for playing. The better-paid players would be getting that, right? Two and a half grand a week, which they're not getting at Dundalk. And yet Dundalk could still play with them. So we need to move away from that idea that the level or the current club is what defines a player. You know, one of my friends, a good friend of mine plays for AIK here in Stockholm. He is, without a shadow of a doubt, the most intelligent footballer I've ever met. Now, that's a pretty fucking small sample size, right? Because not too many of them are clever. But this guy, if he had played in the national team alongside Zlatan Ibrahimovic, Zlatan Ibrahimovic would have scored 200 goals in 100 matches because this guy's so clever the way he opens up space. His career has been spent at Udinese, at Almeria, at Valladolid, at smaller, you know, the, so the, the bottom feeders in Spain and Italy. Now he's at AIK, won one title there that came fourth this year. I was on top of the weekend. I'd like to see him go to Watford because I'd say he's clever enough to keep them up. They've enough good players. They just need somebody to play the ball around, you know. So nobody can ever tell me that he's playing at the wrong club. He went there, he played for the San Jose Earthquakes and everybody's going, who is this guy, you know? And Jack Bourne's a similar kind of player. You know, the club you play for doesn't define you. That's just where you happen to be at any given time. John Sheridan was a fellow, I don't know if you lads are old enough to remember John Sheridan. Yeah, he used to play yeah, for the yeah. Wednesday. John Sheridan was the most tremendous passer of a footballer I have ever seen at Lansdowne Road, right? Now, there's certain other aspects of the game. that he, he wasn't a great tackler. He wasn't a great runner. He wasn't a great header of the ball. But to pass a football, he was very much like Jack Bourne. He had that vision. And he came into Jack's team when they were needed in 1994 where the player could put his foot in the ball and pick out a pass and, and control the tempo the game was needed. And he did that. But nobody would ever say that he was, you know, uh, oh, you know, Sheffield Wednesday or, you know, he could have played in the League of Ireland for, for that. It didn't. That didn't define him. He was still able to go up against Italy and, and you know, hold his own against the Donadotis of this world, you know, so that's nonsense. But, you know, I think Mick is a bit old fashioned as well. And I think that Stephen Kenny's not going to look at things that way. So, in an ideal world, and we're looking at this, obviously, the game against Denmark is a crunch game. So, kind of to, to put kind of what you were saying into a very simple terms, throw everything in the kitchen sink into that Denmark game. But this friendly against New Zealand, 
it, like effectively whatever the League of Ireland team of the season is, fucking let them have a go at it. That, that would be my thing because like, there's too much. Now, I know there's UEFA or UEFA rankings and FIFA rankings and all that, and it affects who your seedings and all that kind of ah, thing. You know? A load of piss. Exactly. But the thing is that I don't care because what do I want out of it? I want Irish footballers doing well. End of story, right? I don't care if it's under 19, under 21. I want to see fellas making a living, expressing themselves, living their dream, achieving what they set out to achieve, and that kind of thing. So, you know, to me, what, you know, if you lose 3 0 to do, I don't care. Like, you know, let them know what it feels like to be in an international dressing room in a, pro- well, what is hopefully now a professional setup where they have kit and balls and they're out there in a decent pitch and everything else like that. And you know what? Bring in 30 lads in the squad. Let them train all week together. And then for the New Zealand game, put out the lads that you were talking about, Daddy, and then change it all around for. Denmark like you know I mean that's be, that'd be the way because you can't if you don't get a chance to experience that like you know there's a lot, lot made of how many of those Dundalk players at the weekend had played in an FA FAI Cup final before now as it turns out Rovers won but that all matters playing in Europe matters being in different situations I spent uh, the month of June with the Norwegian women's national team at the World Cup in France and seeing those girls come into their own and I know some of them since they lost uh, the European Championship final in 2013 uh, here in Stockholm to Germany right so some of the girls would have been in that squad and some of the girls are completely new and to see them come in and to learn about international football and the mental aspect of it uh, the food aspect of it the training the rest all that kind of thing you can't do that in in that way Mick McCarthy's probably right that they need to be at sort of more professional clubs and Shamrock Rovers but Mick McCarthy can also give them that experience he can help them on the way and it's also a shop window you know I've mm. seen so many footballers who get uh, Sweden and, and the like they usually play a summer or sorry a winter tournament in January they'll go to Thailand or they'll go to Abu Dhabi or they'll go to Spain La Manga was a big one for several years and they'll play each other so Sweden will play Norway and it'll be all domestic based players we should be doing that as well and that's a huge shop window because you get a full international cap for that and all of a sudden an agent is going to say oh you know with well, this, this fella he played three times for the Irish on the Irish winter tour in January you know and say says Pat Hoban or whoever it happens to be or Jack Bourne or that kind of thing it's so much easier when you pick up the phone to an English club to a Spanish club to a Dutch club to say this guy has international caps okay then we're going to have a look at him you know because yeah. if he hasn't played since under 15 they don't give a fuck you know so to showcase players in that way i think in the long run you know if if your if your contract is dependent on you qualifying for the next world cup then you have to pick you know all the Seamus coleman's and matt doherty's in this world absolutely you must do that right but if your job is to create generations of irish footballers who will go out there and make me proud then you have to change the way you see the game and how you see results in international matches i'm with you i'm with you completely um, Mero, if it's all right with you, we'll, we'll move the conversation along a little bit because I'm <laughs> conscious you you would happily talk about the success of Shamrock Rovers and their great season just just for hours and hours upon end. <laughs> um, and I'll be magnanimous. Rovers did have a great season, uh, and that's the last time you'll hear me say that. So <laughs> let, let us move on. We need to do what the second captain's there. We need to pick what Danny said there. We need to have that in an audio bed every week. So I leave that to you. <laughs> Uh, I, I do the editing, Phil, so there's a good chance that won't even make the final cut of this episode. <laughs> Just send the whole podcast to Noel McGrath, he'll do the business. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Phil, with the kind of timing that we're talking and the time of this episode will go out and whatnot, it would be remiss if we didn't mention Gay Bourne. Um, and just you you being the intrepid journalist that you are and, and that kind of thing. Gay Bourne has uh, sort of many places and many hearts in Ireland. Uh, what what kind of are your memories and your thoughts on uh, Gabo? 
I think the iconic music that used to start his show, that was when the day started for people in Ireland, right? And the day started for people in Ireland. We had nothing in common, right? Down where you lived, Danny, people were out at six o'clock in the morning on the land and that kind of thing. And in Dublin, people were sitting in their cars and they were going to work in Guinnesses and they were going to work on, on building sites and in offices and that kind of thing. But when that team music kicked off, all of Ireland was listening. There was a million people every day. And the brilliant thing about radio is that he speaks to every one of us, right? People listen to this podcast now. There's four of us in this conversation. There's you, me, Mero, and there's a person with their headphones on, right? And we're sitting there having a chat. Now, you know, sometimes they'd be screaming at us, but they, you know, they're still part of our conversation. And when Gay Bourne got on the radio every morning, he was speaking to me. And he was speaking to my mother and to your mother and to my dad and to the parish priest and to the parish clerk who was cleaning up after my morning mass in the church and he was speaking to the fellow who's out tilling the land and, all, and that was the, the absolute magic of the man that he found a way of pitching things that he spoke to absolutely everybody at the same time and very few people have that gift and I was writing about it yesterday because you know I only bumped into the man a few times and I only realised how important he was in recent years for my relationship with my own father so if I go back to when I was 15 or 16 we lived in Duddy Kearney in Dublin and my brother was going on to university he went on to study at Trinity College but ours wasn't a rich family so you know so if the eldest got into university, there was never going to be the money around to have a second person going to university. So it was you, out you go and fucking work, you know? So my dad had a small building company. And, you know, I realised early in life, I was about 12 years old the first time I did a day's work with my old man. And I realised that that was going to be my life. I was going to have to work for my fucking living. I was going to have to go out there and roll up my sleeves. And to this day, this is, you know, that's fucking 36 years ago and I'm still doing it. It doesn't matter if you're getting your hands dirty on a shovel or if you're doing what I do and talking shite to people all day. I'm still trying to do as much as I can every day. But I realised that... Um, when we would hear that tune every morning, you know, when Morning Ireland was over and Gay Bourne would take over, and then we'd listen to the radio. So we'd be, we might be outdoors working somewhere with a battery-operated transistor radio, and there wouldn't be a word, you know, maybe during the ads or whatever, but you be listening to what Gay said. You didn't need to buy a newspaper. You didn't even listen to the news because he would tell you what was important that day, right? And then for the rest of the day, when he went off the radio at 10 o'clock, for the rest of the day, Gay would have set the tone. So me all man would be talking about, you know, we'd be talking about whatever he had been talking about, right? And sometimes he might have, you know, he'd be interviewing housewives, he'd be doing all sorts of things on there, and it'd be stuff that we would never naturally talk about. You know, it was a bit like how we got into this conversation, Dan. M me and Mielfla would have happily talked about Pats and Shamrock Rovers and Bowes for the whole day, but Gay Bourne gave us different things to talk about every day, and you know, he didn't give us the answers either. You know, he'd tell us, he'd put these things in front of us, and then we'd have to work this shit out for ourselves, and that's what he did for Ireland. But for me, as, as a journalist and as the person, the broadcaster I became, my first love was radio. Now, I write an awful lot and you know but radio is my first love I was on North Dublin Community Radio back around the Atlanta Olympics when Michelle Smith was winning all sorts of gold medals that kind of thing and I didn't secretly want to be gay born because if you're if you're aspiring to be gay born you're fucking dumb right that's like aspiring to be a unicorn it just cannot be done let the man do what he's doing but he certainly sort of like he taught me how intimate broadcasting can be how intimate this relationship with the listener can be and I remember meeting him the very first time I happened to be out walking around uh, in Holt one day. It was just one of those days, you know when you go out and you get the Holt Dart Station and you just walk around ahead. And I was walking down the road and I met him. Now everybody knew he lived in Holt, but I didn't know where he lived. And he came walking towards me, you know, and, and all he said was, there you are now. And I went, oh, how are you gay? <laughs> but it was, and you know, he was saying that, but it wasn't in talk to me now. I want to have a chat with you. It's there you are now. Fuck off and don't talk to me. I'm going to keep going. <laughs> 
But he was still, you know, you, you didn't feel like, you know, dissed or anything else like that. You felt, fucking hell, fair play to Uncle Gabo. He said hello to me, you know. And then a couple of times I bumped into him uh, out in the radio centre out in RTE. And anybody you speak to in RTE, you know, I would be limited. I don't work out of an office. I don't work out of a studio. I don't do any of those things. So, you know, I didn't, I wouldn't know these people as well as many people in RTE would do. But I met him a couple of times out there. And the very last time I met him was probably was, must have been 2016 or 2017. And I was in RT Radio Centre. And I was after being a Marion Fanukin's radio programme. And I came out and he was hanging around the reception. And usually he was waiting for somebody or something on a Sunday morning if he was hanging around the reception, you know. And I thought, well, he might be going home. He might be going down to a studio or whatever else it was, you know. And I came out, you know, and I sort of nodded at him thinking, oh, he's going to tell me to fuck off again kind of thing, you know. And he didn't. And uh, he looked at me and went, oh, were you on the radio just now with Marion? And I said, well, I was, yeah, okay. And he says, um, well, you were very good, he said, but you have to speak slower. I said, I know, Gay. I said, you told me that before. I said, you know what else you have to do? You have to listen to your Uncle Gabe a bit more. And he turned <laughs> yeah. on his heel and he just fucked off. I was like, it's me told right enough, you know. But he was just, he was so you, tremendous. You never took his advice, Phil, did you? No, I can't, man. It's just like, you know, I, somebody actually told me, an American journalist once told me that I should take half a Prozac before I go on podcasts. Because <laughs> at least that way you give the listener a chance. And I was going, oh, no, I just can't do that, you know. The only Phil, is there any, is there any um, lasting memories of Gabo from the Late Late Show because when he hosted it, it was an icon- iconic show and it's quite different than it is now in, in as far as there was a lot more um, topics of that would hit the public, like of religion, of contraception, of even one of one of my favorite interviews. Um, I don't know if favorite is the is the right word, but one of my most intriguing interviews is when uh, the ban was lifted on Jerry Adams. And the interview with Jerry Adams, and I think it went on for the course of maybe forty-five minutes to an hour, um, which you don't really get that when when he was the host, you always got the impression that TV time is unlimited and will go as long as the conversation is is interesting, and it almost went sometimes to midnight, um, which which was I thought was excellent television, but I loved the Jerry Adams interview. I not loved it. I just found it intriguing, and looking back on it like i always watch that interview maybe once a year on youtube it's the most consummately skillful thing i've ever seen right because and there were so many layers to what gay Bourne did right so one thing is gay Bourne never walked into an interview not knowing anything about a subject right i've been interviewed by people when i've written books and i have absolutely i, I know a hundred percent they have no idea who i am they haven't read the book they don't know what the book's about they haven't a fucking clue they just have a list of questions or researchers giving them and they're asking you questions you know and in some cases it's people you know and they haven't a clue like you know gay Bourne knows absolutely everything right so when he sits down with you, he, like he has very good researchers working for him, but he has a curious mind. So he'll tell them what he wants to find out about a particular person if he knows them at all, or he'll tell them to go back and find out even more about them. Now, the, that Sherry Adams interview was fascinating because Gay hated the Ra. He fucking hated the Ra. He hated Sinn Féin. He hated the whole idea of a United Ireland if this is the price that we we're going to have to pay, right? And he shared that with an awful lot of people in the South, right? We had zero understanding in the 70s and 80s, zero understanding of what it was like to live in Derry 
or to live in West Belfast or to live in any part of Northern Ireland. We only knew what we saw from UTV and from RTE and that kind of thing. It was a very, very limited and filtered experience that we had of Northern Ireland. And what Gay Bourne did was he acknowledged that himself and he said, I'm going to ask these questions of Jerry Adams from the perspective that, of, that the audience would want them asked. I'm going to ask him difficult questions. I'm going to be tough. I'm going to ask him to, to back up what he's saying and the things that he has done through this. And, you know, Jerry handled it very, very well. But Gay got the credit because he was able to do that. He came from a position of moral authority and from knowledge and that kind of thing. And that actually was the first insight that any of us in the South had, I would wager, uh, into the thinking of Sinn Féin, the thinking of the IRA, what the people in the North had gone through and that kind of thing. And there was still an awful lot of people who held the same opinions afterwards, but they understood it so much better when Gay was done. And he did that with everything. He did that with the Bishop and the Knighty that we've all heard about. He did that when he rolled out condoms. He did that when he spoke about gay people people first in 1989 you know we always talk about you know gay born was the one who told us all about sex and that kind of thing you know but that was what he did and i remember you know he would have been a very conservative man in terms of his own politics and that kind of thing but he didn't let that color him when he came into these things and that was the brilliance of it and the failure of the late late show today is that you know you can't you just can't really continue without him that show was his you know he, he also yeah he sorry also i just want you're you're bringing up you're bringing up the late late show of today. So, like without we had planned to talk about this anyway, and I just want the opportunity to kind of segue onto it. The late late show nowadays, for example, would facilitate an interview with Katie Hopkins. Do you think a uh, gay born era late late show would have done that? Uh, I think it might, but I think it would have looked totally different, right? You right. See, again, you have to think about how gay approach these things, right? If you're doing this so that you can have on the one hand, on the other hand, that wasn't gay's way of doing things, right? Because gay knew his own mind. He believed that he was able to argue his case in front of anybody, be that the board of directors in RTE or the broadcasting authority or on his radio show for his listeners the following Monday morning, because that was the thing. The Late Late Show didn't end on a Saturday night or a Friday night as it was at the time. The late show, late show could sometimes continue on to a Monday morning because it filled the newspapers. So he, but he had an intellect that was capable of arguing these things, and he did make mistakes. His, his interview with Annie Murphy was one of the most appalling car crashes yeah. I've ever seen. But he owned it gradually afterwards, right? He was coming from a place where you know he never let on to be anything other than that he was, and he was, you know, a cranky old man. Certainly towards his sort of his finally, like throughout the nineties, I suppose he was probably a, a bit of a cranky old man, you know. But the way, the, the, so the, the weight that he brought to the subjects i mean it's kind of embarrassing now you were mentioning the fact that you know time was an elastic concept to gay born if he wanted to run on if he wanted an item to keep running he would do it you know the night the he had the sheridan brothers on peter and jim jim the director and uh, peter the theater director and actor they started to speak about their father and their father was a fascinating man they were from sheriff street in dublin their father was a fascinating man and it just went through and there was a, an ad break and it was an ad break, and they just kept talking about the sheridan's father you know the whole night and they never i think they were doing some theater production at the time but that just got sort of tacked on at the end and on occasion like they were rushing through whatever competition or whatever quiz they had because gay had found something more interesting to talk about and yeah, he had yeah. He had the courage there, and Jerry Ryan was capable of doing it as well. He had the courage to go, you know what, hold the fucking phones here. Let's deal with this. Let's give this the airtime it, it deserves. Let's ask the questions. Like, you know, when I see the Late Late Show now, uh, you look at it and you go, okay, it's not telling me anything I don't already know. If you bring on an Ian O'Doherty or Katie Hopkins, I know what they know already. I know what they're going to say. So you Absolutely. need to ask them questions either that I personally would ask them or the audience wants answer to or questions that they've never been asked before. 
right? I remember the interview with Slash from Guns N' Roses a few years ago, and he walked in and he was bored out of his fucking mind. And I said, you're after doing about five interviews already today. He says, yeah, tell me about it, man. I said, I promise you, if I ask you one question that anybody else has asked you, you hold up your hand and I'll walk out of this fucking room, right? And in the meantime, I was just going to the World Cup in uh, Brazil uh, a couple of days after that. I had a gas mask hanging off me bag and he went can I start by asking you why you have a gas mask on your bag and after that we were fine because we talked about you know his records and that kind of thing didn't talk about Guns N' Roses any of that kind of thing but that's that's how you have to do it lads and if you're going to have a debate right there's no point in listening to people I was just looking at the Conservative Party now obviously as we're speaking there's an election coming up in in Britain right and there's been a cheat sheet sent out to Conservative candidates this is what you say when people say this I've seen the Labour Party cheat sheets as well about anti-Semitism in the party and this is what you say say this do you think Gay Bourne was going to let you just recite your fucking cheat sheet and go out of there you know in one piece no 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 no. so Gay Gay Bourne was like Vincent Brown but Gay Bourne never took anybody onto the killing floor right he'd fucking fill at you but you wouldn't know until you'd left, whereas Vincent would fill it on the spot, live on air. But you wouldn't realise the contempt that Gay Bourne had for your stock answers until you were gone and you were sitting in the taxi and leaving Dublin 4. And that's why they can't do that now, because, you know, Ryan Torbley in his own way is an absolutely brilliant broadcaster, but this is not his gig, right? Yeah, he, do, you, do you remember as well with Gay Bourne when uh, he was announcing the competition winner? And yeah. the competition, competition winner... Um, I think she was a bit down on the phone call and yeah. she just won the cash prize and she announced that she had just buried her daughter or something like that, or That's a family right. member. Her daughter died just, the previous day. I think the, the prize was a car, right? But, but the, the skill here, Meryl, right, is when you have Ryan Torbley on the programme, he's always trying to turn, like he's always trying to steer the conversation into a touchy-feely space where he can say, you know, well, I think you're great and thanks very much for coming, right? Gayborn never did that. Gayborn was always honest about it. And he grabbed that situation by the hair and he didn't let it go. The easiest thing to do would be to say, you know, thanks very much and good night. You know, I'm really, really sorry. But he let the woman talk, right? And that was the humanity of the man. He was never going to back away from a difficult conversation. He was never going to back away from a difficult question. And he was never going to let you back away from it either. And when the whole, like, I don't know if you've seen that clip recently where that woman uh, was was told that she had that prize. And the whole audience went, oh, and that was Gay's cue because the audience wants to know how this woman is feeling. And we're going to see. We, he didn't take for granted that she was going to speak about it. But he, well, we're going to see if she wants to talk about it. And he let the woman talk. And somebody made the point today. And you know, I'm, I'm really sorry to the person who made this point. I can't remember exactly who it was on Twitter. Was that he let the small voices speak. And so many people who wrote into that show, if you go back to when Anne Lovett died in a grotto in Granard in the 1980s, giving birth to a child, and um, Lorelai was his producer. Lorelai Harris, I think is the woman's name, was his producer. And she's now part of uh, the documentary on one team at RTE, right? An absolutely brilliant producer and broadcaster. And I remember listening to her speak about that. And Gayborn, like the pressure on him not to mention this, not to deal with this at all, was enormous. Because, you know, uh, the Kerry Babies was another thing, the secrecy around that, because that's how we react in Ireland to a lot of these things, or certainly how we did react. It's like, no, 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 make this all go away, you know? Well, Gay didn't. And people wrote to him, and they wrote to him anonymously. And to me, that was the start. That was the first crack in the dam that has been 25, 30 years bursting to the point where we can now talk about institutional abuse, where we can now talk about direct provision, which is happening in real time, and wondering what, what horrors that are going, that's going to visit on us in five or ten years' time when the stories come out about it. But Gay opened up all those things for us by giving these small, small voices and putting them in front of an audience of a million or more people 
five or six days a week as it was but you know and, and when, when Lorelai actually his producer she went to try to make a documentary about Anne Lovett and every door was closed in her face and it ended up being inspired by the letters that people wrote to Gay it's called Letters to Anne and uh, you'll find it on the Doc on One website mm. I'm sure but you know and, and to him that's what we owe him We've, he has allowed us to know ourselves and, you know, such a brilliant listener because it's only, in, you know, I, I, you're getting to be, to know me now when I think about things because you're listening to me and your listeners are listening to me and that kind of thing. That's how you get to know people. You don't get to know people through talking with them or talking at them. You get to know people through listening. And for all the great things he said and for all his skill in script writing, which is always underestimated, in delivery, always underestimated, he was such a brilliant listener. And that's the lesson for us all. Phil, like it's kind of weird because you, you made so many points there, um, mostly because you, you you were gone for about ten minutes. But, <laughs> <laughs> well, and and when you mentioned about gay telling you to slow down, I'm delighted you didn't because in an hour podcast with you, you fit in the material. Any other guest would take three hours to fit in. So <laughs> uh, so thank you for being the Gatlin gun of audio guests do you know what i really wanted to say to gay that day daddy right <laughs> what i really wanted to say do you know why i speak so quickly is because i think that somebody is eventually going to take this microphone off me right <laughs> and that i'm going to lose this chance i have to say whatever i have to for, so until then it's monopoly with a microphone you know that's <laughs> and if anybody if anybody has the balls to, to interrupt me go right ahead but other than that i'm going to keep going you know yeah, listen, there'll always be a microphone on this podcast here. <laughs> um, but yeah, you made some really interesting points and kind of one that you touched on sort of, you know, the late, late of today versus the late, late of kind of 20, 30 years ago. And and in that vein, uh, I suppose it kind of segues into just the state of media in general. And when we, when we had John last time, we kind of touched on it, but I was fascinated by it. And I think given you mentioned that and you mentioned the fact that the Tories have their little cheat sheet for, for candidates. Labour have their little cheat sheet for candidates. Uh, it's abundantly clear, especially across the way, that partisan media is is in rude health, which which is alarming in many senses. Um, and, you know, given you're far more versed and far more uh, experienced in these kind of things, I figured I'd open the floor to you um, as to what is wrong with the world of media today. Um, what is wrong with the world of media today is that we have a lessening public service and an increased private ownership of media, right? Gaybourne did what Gaybourne did on public service radio and television, paid for by my parents and by me and by you guys now, right? And it wasn't run as a commercial entity. I know RTE ran ads in the day and that kind of thing, but, uh, you know, and they still do. But, you know, in, in many countries, the BBC has no ads, you know, in Sweden, Norway, Denmark, they don't have any ads on public service and that kind of thing. So that is their public service is there to be a balance to the private interest that own media houses, right? Media houses ultimately represent people who own capital and they want to make a profit, right? Now, if that's your goal, if your goal is to get clicks, right? I was talking to somebody recently who's, um, she shamefully admitted to me and she didn't want to admit to me that she'd worked for the Daily Express, right? Until very, very recently. The Daily Express. There you go. The the world's greatest newspaper was their masthead for a while, wasn't it? Exactly. I mean, if you, like, it was like Viz for adults, you know, it's just fucking (laughs) horrific. But like a daily version of it. But, you know, if you're writing for that and the thing is, you have to write eight articles a day and they have to get X amount of clicks and that kind of thing. That's not journalism. Journalism is is usually sort of, you know, telling the truth to power or printing something that somebody doesn't want printed or that kind of thing. Right. And it is almost impossible 
to do that in commercial media, right? And it's also almost impossible when you're dealing with a UFC fighter that you want to maintain access to, a professional footballer who's looking for a move from Shamrock Rovers to Juventus. You know, so all of these things come into play. So you need to have the sort of difference between public service, which is there to serve the people, and it's there to tell you sort of things about Ireland from an Irish perspective and to, you know, to encourage the arts and to promote them and that kind of thing. And then private media, which is there to make a profit. Now, they might tell you a great yarn in the process, right? But at the end of the day, it's pounds, shillings and pence. They're there to make a profit. And as consumers, I've over the last 20 years, I no longer place the blame on journalists and editors because I've just given up. They're just not prepared to accept the burden of it, which is why I often speak to readers and to listeners and to viewers about their responsibility to be educated about what they're seeing, right? So, so much of these things is down to, and you know, there's only so far that they can go. I mean, credibility has fallen apart for the media on certain things, you know. And I mean, nobody's going to believe Fox News anymore, partisan as it is, right? But if educated people are watching Fox News, you know, they're just going to go, no, okay, the advertisers are going to go somewhere else eventually, you know. So that's it loosely. But I mean, we have to be very, very careful about what we do to public service broadcasting. I've previously said that RTE shouldn't have ads at all, right? If you have to double the cost of license fee or, you know, take money from somewhere else, fund it, fund it handsomely, don't take any advertising whatsoever. Because one once you do that, then you're removed from the commercial sphere. And it also frees up money that can be spent on, if it has to be News Talk, the Irish Independent, or indeed the Daily Express, fine. And then you hope then that they do the right thing and that they invest in proper journalism. But ultimately, to me, in a mature media market, and you know what, now what I'm saying, educated readership, I'm not being snobbish there. I'm not saying that you have to have a university degree. I'm saying you have to have common fucking sense and that you have to know what it is, what forces are at work here, why you're being told certain things in certain ways, right? A good story, a good example of this right now that's happening in Dublin is this development that's happening at O'Devony Gardens in Dublin, right? Now, I yes. used to DJ in Dublin uh, at a pub just around the corner from O'Devony Gardens. I used to know the people who lived there. I know the troubles that they went to with the heroin dealers that used to be there in the 90s. I know how many people died there, how many people had daughters and sons that were lost to drugs or that wound up in the joy for dealing or whatever else like that. Uh, they boarded up apartments that were used for selling and for fixing and that kind of thing. I know what they've gone through. I know last night that there was a vote taken um, in the Dublin City Council to allow development, which features an awful lot of private capital and borrowed money, and that's not really going to give a whole lot back to the people, right? Now, journalism should be telling you why this is happening, right? What's happening and why this is happening. And yet, I'm seeing things all day. Nobody really understands what's going on in this situation, right? I'm seeing uh, this whole thing about the national broadband plan and rolling out that. I'm not seeing, you know, I'm seeing that, you know, it's going to cost us three billion. We're never going to own it. You know, why aren't these things being explained to people? Why don't people understand them? How did they manage to get this? Why was there a spotlight never turned on these things? You know, and as consumers, everybody who opens up a newspaper needs to be able to say, right, you know, this sounds like it could be true. I th I'm not sure if I told you before, I once worked with a great uh, Swedish journalist. If you remember about 10 or 15 years ago, you might be a little bit young for this, lads, but uh, probably about 10 or 12 years ago, there was a fella got on a Ryanair flight uh, with a gun in a toilet bag, right? In his sort of, uh, in his wash bag. And he was arrested here in Scalston, Sweden. And it was like, this was after 9-11, everything else like that. It was the greatest scandal in the world kind of thing, you know? But this guy put out a story and, uh, you know, I was saying to him, you know, are you sure that's right? And he says, no, no, uh, it doesn't have to be true. It only has to be probable. Right. So if you can understand, if you can think to yourself, uh, OK, that that might be possible. And then think to yourself, which newspapers every day are leading with certain headlines that, you know, I usually say all the calories in the headline and there's nothing in the story at all. Like the story is just fluff. But, you know, you see something and then then you wonder why people go around living in fear be it of migrants or of, you know, certain criminal families in Dublin or whatever else like that, you know? And that's what I'm saying, where people need to educate themselves about what the risks are, what's actually happening. You know, I mean, 
I often thought the reason that I object so much to the conversation around asylum seekers and direct provision in Ireland is because nobody has any understanding of what it is to put their child in a boat. Nobody in Ireland has any understanding of the feeling of walking out your front door and leaving everything you own behind you with only the shirt on your back and a few things in a rucksack that's going to be fucked into the sea by a people smuggler so they can put somebody else into a boat. Nobody has any understanding of that, right? And yet, they will stand outside a DP centre or they'll put it something out on Twitter or they'll go into the comments of the journal and they, they'll start to sort of give their two shillings worth because we as journalists haven't educated them, but they as, as consumers of journalism haven't educated themselves. And until we get to that point where we as journalists are providing that public service and they as, as a public, as an audience are receiving that and judging that correctly on its merits and making their own decisions. I'm not saying to you that you have to take in people into your own home. I'm not even saying to you that you have to pay for it. But what you have to understand is the information that you are basing your decision on. You have to know the effect that that decision is going to have and you have to take responsibility for that. And that that applies to absolutely everything in politics, not just DP, taxation, how we're going to build bypasses in Mayo, you know, you know, how the broadcasting charge or the what our internet charge is going to work. All of those things are related. Is there, is there and, 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 I, and I, I get what you mean about the whole, you've kind of given up blaming journalists and blaming editors. But, but at the same time, I think... Confirmation bias is one of those things that is uh, it's it's absolutely fucking rampant everywhere, and people will always go to the news source or always go to, and in some cases they're not even a news source. I, I feel bad saying news source because I'm including the likes of the fucking liberal.ie in this. People will always go to the thing that aligns with their mindset. So another example being. Um, People might have seen earlier this week that the Telegraph had to issue another retraction and another apology. Uh, third time this year, one of their Boris Johnson articles has been basically a load of shite. And they, they had to more or less put their hands up and say, we're sorry. They didn't say it was Boris Johnson. They, they didn't, you know, but, but they it was it was clear that with, with the context that it was Boris Johnson. You know their readership isn't really going to care about that because they'll their their readership is supporting Boris Johnson anyway. So when it gets to the whole thing, they've, of, read, they've read the initial article and they believe what they want to believe. The yeah. apology they don't care about. So exactly. So when it gets to this whole thing of you know the, the reader needs to kind of educate themselves and you need to become a discipline educator. The people, do you think that they actually care? Do they want to be, or are they just looking for something that confirms? The opinion they have anyway so they they just get to be you know oh well i read it here and that backs up what i'm saying and more rabble 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 yeah no i think i think there's definitely a case to be made for that because if you read something that already agrees confirmation bias is a big thing and it actually makes us feel very safe and very comfortable mm. in what we're doing and that's why we need to understand like the great thing one of the great debates at the moment is the algorithms that run youtube and facebook and twitter to a lesser extent right yeah and when we start to understand how they are rewiring our brains right like how they are leading us down these things and basically what it is and the whole media has been about this and this is nothing new right it didn't come with Facebook and YouTube and Twitter. But if you go back to what they call the penny dreadfuls in the 1800s, right? These were books and sort of basically horror yeah. stories presented as news sometimes, you know, and people read them. Jack the Ripper. Why do you think we still remember Jack the Ripper? It's because it's a, the salacious way that this was reported. It's because he was given a name, Jack the Ripper, you know? And like that's the sort of thing that appeals to us as people, right? Now, whether or not the, the, the Telegraph people care or not, that's one thing. Some people 
they just decide that this is what I believe and fuck everybody anyway, right? But for certain readers of the Telegraph, you know, that, that'd be our hardcore, but for certain readers of the Telegraph, they would care. But that's why it's so important to teach them to see it in the original article so that they don't have to wait for the retraction or the apology. You know, because mm-hmm. if Boris Johnson's writing something, I know every time I write something, I know that there's a risk that an editor is going to call me up and say, what's this, right? And I go through every article I write, every single sentence I write, and I say to myself, how do I know this to be true? And if I can't back that up, if, if I can't say, well, Graham Merrigan said that in an interview on the Shamrock Rovers website, then I can't have it in there. If it's because, oh, you know, Danny Murray said it, a bloke in a pub said to him that Merrill once did that. I, that's not good enough for me. I have to be able to to verify every single thing that I write down, right? And if people know these things, and that's how, to, you know, anything Boris Johnson wrote, it, like a five-year-old child would read anything he ever wrote in the Telegraph and realise that 95% of it was absolute bullshit, right? Then you can go on and you can choose to believe that. Absolutely, that's your right as an you can believe whatever the hell you want but if you're educated about these things you cannot say that you did not know so that out is gone you can't say oh well you know i I believe it because it's in the paper or because i heard it on the radio that kind of thing if you know how the media works if you're media literate you can never say you never have that defense of i did not know and that's what i'm trying to uh, work towards where the people can see through the tricks that are used and the words that are used and the trigger words that are used to create certain reactions so they learn you know so they learn to sort of deny the clickbait, to walk away from the things like, you know, at the moment the Liberals have a right go at Charlie Flanagan, you know, but that's basically a front. You're having to go with somebody in power who looks like it doesn't bother him. But, you know, who you're really having to dig at, you're having to dig at migrants again. And that's yeah. what Lying Leo is trying to get to, you know. So, like, the way all these things works, it's not rocket science and it doesn't take long to learn it. And I honestly think that, you know, it's something that... I'm not sure if I told you guys again before, but the best, the, the only lesson that I remember from five years in Arsco Reach on Griffith Avenue in Dublin, right? I can't remember shit from that school, but I remember a Wednesday afternoon civics class when Anya Nikhading, who was a civics teacher, taught us how to read a newspaper. And literally, my life changed at that moment. This is who owns it. This is where they put. The, this is where they put the editorial. This is the newspaper's opinion on things. This is news. This is comments. This is the small lads. This is where you'll find another woman when you're 50 and down in your look in the small lads and the lonely hearts or whatever, you know. But literally, that is the only thing that I can recall. I can recall where I was sitting in the classroom. I can recall the angle I had looking at the T-shirt because that changed my world. Until then, I believed everything Gay Bourne said. I believed everything on the news one or on the six one news. I believed everything I saw in the Sunday World, the Sunday Independent. And that day at the age of 14 and second year in Arsenal Reach, that changed everything for me. And I've been like that every time. And you kind of feel like, you know, this bearded, spectacularly fucking skinny John the Baptist standing there screaming your truth in the desert. And at some <laughs> point, at some point, lad, somebody's going to go, that bloke might have been right. That might be a good idea that we spend a little bit more time looking at these things, you know? Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Mero, are you frozen? Sorry, are you frozen, Mero? Are you? No, no, no I, just, I, I didn't realise Phil had finished talking. Uh, <laughs> every now and then I have to take a breath, usually every 10 to 15 minutes. I'm like a free diver, you know, those guys who go free diving down hundreds of metres. Yeah. You know? <laughs> every now and then I come up for air, you know. Every so yeah, often, but... every so often, Merrow freezes on Skype and I just have to check in on him to make sure that he hasn't actually fallen yeah, asleep. They're, you know? they're actually, yeah, no, they're actually my favourite bits of the podcast, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, the last time you were on, we were talking about... Um, I suppose the ignorance of Peter Casey on the presidential campaign um, and kind of is there a concern about the far right? Has that worry about the far right got worse, particularly in Ireland? Um, 
it depends where your starting point is, Graham. You know, like it, I wouldn't be worried about it because I've seen this coming for a long time, right? So this is exactly what I expected, right? And even today, I think I made the point on Twitter as well that you know you're now getting a situation where people are protesting outside direct provision centres. And on Marion Fanukin's program on Sunday, which I'm sure both of you were sleeping off the hang. Oh no, you were probably having a few points before the cup final, right? But yeah. there was a chap on who owns a direct provision centre in County Wicklow, and he was saying that the secrecy they needed uh, was they were negotiating with the government agencies, right? He was saying absolutely under no circumstances is there to be any publicity around this until the deal is done and people are moved in, right? Now, why was that? Because if it word got out around the town that he's working in, that he was thinking of bringing refugees in there and opening a DP centre, A, either people would boycott his business in the best case scenario, in the worst case scenario, they would burn his hotel down. Right now, he was saying that the only reason his building survived, he feels, is that uh, there was guests, hotel guests, up until the day they made the move into taking in guests in direct provision instead. Right? We've seen that happen in Ruski, I think it was, and in uh, there was one or it was Abbey. I can't remember exactly the name of the two towns, but two places have gone up in flames already. Right? And people are looking at that, going, "Does that surprise?" Absolutely not, because I've seen it happen probably a dozen occasions that I can recall off the top of my head here in Sweden, right? Where a local will say, we're going to open a, a, a refugee, or a, sorry, a centre for asylum seekers, or whatever, and it burns down before anybody gets into it, right? So what we have is, we have people who are involved in the far right that are arsonists, but they're not yet murderers, right? On some ca- In some occasions, they've tried to burn down places with people in them, but for the most part, they burn down empty buildings. And they see this as a sort of a legitimate tactic in what they're doing. So... On the one hand, we have a situation where we would like to talk to communities like on Ackle Island. I know some of my best friends are over here are from Ackle Island, right? And I know what people are saying over there. They've no problem there, but they need to be reassured before people get. I get that. Any community is going to want to know what changes are going to be there. What is there going to be new bus routes? Is there going to be a new GP? Is there going to be English yeah. language services? Are you going to, like, are these people going to be looked after? They're genuine concerns, and that's fine. But if you just don't like brown people, you know, and you're going to burn the place out, that's not fine. But that's the level of secrecy that's necessary because. As soon as the place goes out now, you have these gobshites with their placards standing in front of it. And all they have is protests. They have no solutions. They just don't want to see brown people being moved into anywhere in Ireland. And that's yeah. a real, real problem because they're now this handful of people. They're whipping up sort of hatred on Facebook and that kind of thing. And once you clip, oh, sorry, once you click on one of their clips, the next thing you're going to get suggested on on YouTube or on Facebook is something similar and something similar and something similar. And then you're down that rabbit hole and you're into no-go zones and you're into creeping Sharia and you're into all these things, you know. So from that point of view, it's going pretty much by the book. And unfortunately, I made the point there recently that it's going to get worse. Like you know, it, th- this is going to get worse because the the situation is going to go away. The Irish government is not in any hurry to do anything for these people. They are taking the absolute bare minimum into yeah. Ireland and they've no idea what to do with it the whole reason direct provision is as it is the cruelty is the point dehumanisation is the point the reason that some people are staying in hotels where they're not allowed to go through the lobby they have to use the back steps they're not allowed to sit in the comfy chairs down there or anything else like that and the same thing happens to homeless families uh, who are housed in hotels as well the cruelty is the point right they talk about they don't want to attract people they don't want this pull factor is what one Finnegal TD talked about about uh, when they voted against uh, the search and rescue missions in the Mediterranean, they don't want a pull factor, right? Yeah, what about the push factor? What about what's pushing people out of Kurdistan at the moment, right? Those people don't give a fuck about the fact that they're not going to be rescued. At the moment, they just don't want to be killed by the ISIS people that you just let out of prison in Turkey because you just couldn't keep your fucking word to them, you know? So, like, the pull factor, these, there's no pull factor here. Nobody wants to live in direct provision. You know, there's nobody saying that, and nobody says, I'm not going to go to Ireland because that system is fucking appalling and dehumanizing. What they are leaving is possibly death. It's persecution. It could be prison. In Eritrea, for instance, young men like yourselves would have gone into military service at around the age of 18 or 19. Marrow, how old are you? 32? 
35. 35, right? You could probably... wine, though. Uh, well, no, nah, well, let's let's go easier. Yeah, no, you're but, only uh, old vinegar at this stage. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's only fit for the chips. But the thing is that if you go into um, if you go into military service, this happened to friends of mine from both Eritrea and a Syrian lad that I worked with before. The military service is not for a year or two years. Military service is at their discretion. So you could be there seven, eight, nine years. Your best years as a footballer, as a carpenter, as a husband, as a father, your children, your children, they're gone. You know, and that's why people are leaving and they're making the trip across Sudan and up to Libya and that kind of thing. And eventually winding up in Ireland because they think maybe they don't know the details of many of these places. They just know there's going to be a roof over your head and a couple of meals a day. But then they get there and the cruelty is the problem. And the, the, like the, the hope is that, you know, either they'll get pissed off and go home. I remember uh, there's a bunch of lads I drove to the airport here in Sweden in 2015 and they had come all the way from Iraq. One of them had been a policeman who worked with the American forces and they knocked on his door. Uh, but like when the Americans had left, the militia knocked on his door one night and said, OK, there's uh, there's a new sheriff in town around here you worked with the Americans we don't trust you you're out of here so he had to leave his wife uh, who was pregnant at the time he brought her to uh, her mother and father's house and he had to leave and that man told me how they were put in a boat uh, to go from Turkey to Greece and as soon as they got out about three or four hundred meters into the water the engine of the boat died and they figured, well, you know, the boats were sitting still in the water in the middle of the night. They were sitting ducks. And he told me how he and several others got out and they started swimming and pulling the boat behind them. And some of the fellows who pulled the boat behind them, they died as well. Some of the people in the boat, they, some of the women panicked, right? And some of the people in the boat, they died as well. They made their way through Greece, up through the Balkans, up through Germany, up through Denmark. And they had been told their ultimate goal was to get to Finland because they'd heard, by you know, the grapevine, you know, these Chinese whispers. They had told, they had been told... In Sweden, they would have a 50-50 chance of getting asylum. But in Finland, that chance would rise to two and three. So they came through Copenhagen. They got to Malmö. They didn't want to claim asylum in any of these places. They wanted to get on a train all the way up, 15, 16, 20 hours, can't even remember how far it is, up and walk across the border into Finland and claim asylum up there, right? And they got as far as Stockholm. And your man went, it's just not fucking worth it. And they said to him in Stockholm, we tried to claim asylum here. And they said to him in Stockholm, look, at, you know, this is going to take ages. Uh, you have your wife over there. There's no guarantee that you and the child that you have, your child that you haven't met yet could be brought to Sweden. This could take years. And he went, just, I just want to go home. And they gave him a ticket and I drove him to the airport. And he left here with what he came here with, which was absolutely fucking nothing. And he paid thousands of euros for the privilege, right? Now, again, if you want to talk about a pull factor, do you think these people are going to direct provision? This looks like, you know, a life of luxury to them. No, that's, that's not how these things work. If well, you talk- like, I, 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 there's, a, there's a player we have in our basketball team, the Ballyrack Bulls, Mandela N-Cube. Um, he is living in direct provision in the Clondalkin twin, uh, twin double towers or twin towers. Um, and he had to, f- he fled, I think it was Cameroon, the Irish Times did an article on him, um, because he, he joined their basketball club and he's, the, the article was like, oh, he's smiling again, despite, um, despite being in direct provision. But Mandela had to flee Cameroon because he was, he came out as a bisexual man. Yeah. So the local police or whatever found out about this. So they tried to kick down his door in his apartment just to arrest him because he was gay. Um, I'm not sure now if it was Cameroon, but just might have been some, I can't remember. Look, it was some uh, East African country and um, he jumped from the apartment balcony to the floor thinking he'd make it, but he broke his back um, and lost the use of his legs. So he was hospitalized with with an armed fucking police guard. Um, somehow his friends uh, managed to get him out of there. They brought him to this uh, kind of old village 
um, where they used old school remedies, uh, natural remedies, to to ease the pain of his of his broken spine, uh, and then he took the usual route as any asylum seeker would through uh, Africa and, and and made it to Ireland. But Mandela um, is waiting red, uh, registration for his Irish uh, passport for the last three or four years, or maybe two or three years. Um, but he's on a he's he's not in receipt of any disability benefit. Um, he's kind of signed off from the National Rehabilitation Hospital because uh, his rehabilitation is over. So he can't get out to training to us. And he's on a measly €12.60. So if he wants to get to training to us, he has to get the Lewis into town and the seven bus out to Ballyrack. Uh, and he has to do that back. But he doesn't get free transport. So he has to pay nearly six, seven €7 uh, just on the transport on a Monday. And and that's nearly that's that's more than half of his of his uh, allowance gone like this is just nonsense like and and pe- the people to to object for stories like that there's probably worse stories than Mandela and do you know what the thing is he just keeps on smiling this is the thing yeah. I mean I, no, sorry I, lads Zimbabwe Mero, just, Zimbabwe uh, sorry sorry yeah. Zimbabwe and a couple of countries in that area, Uganda is very tough on gay people as well. You know, like when you hear these stories, I mean, one of the most ironic, bitterly fucking ironic things I heard years ago, I was working on a BBC Four uh, radio comedy called The Cold Swedish Winter, right? Now, occasionally, like a media company would ring you up and say, look, we need somebody in Sweden to sort out the practical details, call a fixer or location manager or whatever. Yeah. And this English comedian was after writing a play. He was also married to a Swede and he said, play's called The Cold Swedish Winter. And in the second or third season of it, uh, he wrote something about that refugee crisis that happened in 2015 when so many people came up here. And he had an Afghan asylum seeker play a part in it, right? So it's a four-part series. Every year usually it comes out. And the chap's name was Ajmal Shamsi. So we got to know Ajmal during the recording. The recording takes place during one week in July or August here in Stockholm. And Ajmal came up on the train from where he was living. And um, he played an asylum seeker. And in the, the comedy uh, he eventually is successful with his asylum application, right? And the day before it was broadcast on BBC Radio 4, the Swedish Migration Board contacted him and, tell, and told him that he was being rejected and he was being sent back to Afghanistan, right? Now, this lad, his brother had been taken by the Taliban and basically sent uh, to fight and his brother was killed almost instantly arriving at the front, right? And then the Taliban came back. Right. And his mother said, you came back to tell me that my eldest son is killed and now you want to take my next eldest son. And they said, oh, you know, he's going to heaven, et cetera, et cetera. You know, he's going to go there. He's going to fight and we'll train him a little bit better and that kind of thing, you know. And um, the mother told him to run. And he said, well, where do I run to? And she said, you just run. And he left. And he came all the way across around the whole thing, right? And now he was going to be sent back there. And the reasons they gave were absolutely bizarre. You know, they were saying that, uh, oh, you know, he wasn't able to give such comprehensive details of his trip to Sweden, right? But the thing is, the people traffickers, you know, now his family would have been quite wealthy. You know, this wasn't some fellow who was on his uppers there. His family would have been quite wealthy and they were able to give him the money to make the journey. I think he said to me a cost of €12,000 in total, right? But um, he, he was able to make his way across crossed Iran and into Turkey and then uh, okay, it's the same part of Greece and all the way up to Sweden then, right? But um, they said to him, oh, you know, he wasn't able to give any detailed description of it. The reason for that was because the people, people smugglers tell them, if you give any details about how you got here that leads anybody back to us, we'll find you, we'll kill you. Right. So needless to say, when they're interviewed for the first time, and that's usually what they go on. It's like the first couple of interviews. Uh, when you were interviewed for the first time and they say, how did you get there? You go, oh, I don't really know. Oh, did you come through Croatia? Oh, I don't really know. Did anybody help you? Oh, I was with a friend of mine. Where is he now? Oh, I don't really know. You know, so, you know, you're not going to put yourself in a position where that happens. Now, also, he was told 
uh, that if he was to wait a few weeks or months before he sought asylum, he would have a better chance of staying there. The truth is actually the opposite. As soon as you arrive in a country, your best chance is if you say straight away that you're there, right? And he didn't do that, and that stood against him as well. Now, eventually... Um, like the, the, he eventually appealed it and he was helped out in many ways by many local people not least by the BBC who covered the story and he got to stay but for all the times that that happens like you know I've been out in the place lads where they keep people before deporting them and it's the most miserable fucking place I've ever been like you know I've we been don't, we in don't know how lucky we have it like but this is the thing, and, and to be honest you know again I, I, I don't I don't object to people who have certain opinions right I absolutely don't object to that at all but I object to the fact that they don't know what they're talking about right because if you're going to come to me and you're going to talk to me about refugees and asylum seekers and about Muslims and about all these things. I expect you to know what you're fucking talking about, right? And so many people just don't. And this is why, again, it goes back to being literate about these things. Go tell the stories of these people. And the Irish media are terrible. Like, sometimes we do the thing, as with your friend in basketball, right? His story doesn't need to be told because of the fact that he's smiling. Because if we get to the end of that story, he's still smiling. A lot of people are going to go, ah, fuck him. He doesn't need us, right? It's, it's, it's absolutely outrageous that a man in his situation has gone through what he has done can't even play a bit of basketball with the lads in the brack right somebody somewhere must be able to fix it and I mean when I say somebody somewhere I mean the state has to be able to say you know what we can give that lad a couple of taxis a week to get him over across the East League Bridge get into Ballybrack or is it the M50 I'm not sure these days it's so long since I drove in Dublin but you know get him over there let him play his basketball let him go home do you know why because it's a right fucking thing to do not because Absolutely. it costs something or because somebody else doesn't get something because because it's the right thing to do. And again, that's where it all comes down to. You know, it's we all want the same things out of life. We all just want to lead a dignified life, maybe have a couple of kids, have somewhere to live, be able to go to bed without being hungry every night, feel safe in our relationships with people, that we don't feel threatened by those around us, that kind of thing. That's all any of us want out of life. And, you know, if you're not working towards that, you know, I always find it weird that people use the word social justice warrior as, as an insult. It's like, if you're not fighting yeah. for social justice, what the fuck are you fighting for? You know, that's, if you're what, Danny, not Dan, that's these, what Danny calls me all the time. Yeah, but you know what? And you know, I'm sure he calls you that in jest, you know, because I never see you doing <laughs> that for anybody else, you bollocks, you know. But 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 if you can see it from that point of view, like, what what does it cost? You know, if it's say it's gonna cost fifty, sixty euros to send that lad each week, right? Taxi driver would be happy for it. That chap would be happy for it. The people at Bally Brackman would be happy for it. The instant karma that you get out of doing these things. Again, like you know, I got the word the other day. Every year uh, we have a football team that plays indoors because the winters are long here. And when we started, the lads were teenage boys. A lot of them were from uh, from Somalia, from Afghanistan, from Syria, from Kurdistan, right? And now their young lads are 20, 21. They're out of school. They're in their first apprenticeships, that kind of thing. Lovely fellas. But every year we still have this football team that started in 2015 because we needed to find something for them to do, right? A few of us got together. We put the money together. Now, the organization, it's like the Power Leagues organization, right? They, they uh, give us a 50% discount. So we pay 300 euros and they pay 300 euros. And we play the football and that kind of thing. And what we get out of that, and what our community gets out of that, and what these lads get out of that, it's worth a million fucking euro to me, right? That's because, you know, we know where they are. We keep an eye on them. One of the lads, actually, his father was, uh, they came here independently of one another, an Afghan boy. And uh, himself and his father came here. And they weren't reunited for about a year. It took him a year to find out what DP centre, or the equivalent of a DP centre, his father was in here. And then as soon as he found his father, his father was about three hours away by train. And then he moved him way up the north of the country, you know. And then his father had a heart attack. And the poor young fella, he stopped coming. And he said, well, what's the problem? And so my father's sick. I said, well, do you want to go up to him? He said, well, I don't have the money to go up to him. And the lads, the other lads that are there who don't have much more money than he 
does, had a whip around and sent him off on an overnight train to go and see his father. You know, so when you pass that on, when you do this sort of pay it forward thing, you're creating a better society just naturally. Well, having that chap playing basketball with you is going to make a better world for all of us. Even if I never meet him or never see him, knowing that he's happy makes me fucking happy, you know? And again, that's that's all that any of us should be striving for is a good family or a, a good life for ourselves and for our families, but to aspire to have that for every family, not just for those who are privileged. That's a great way to end it. It's fun to say, I'll say all of us. Bill, thanks for that hour. It was a quick hour. Let, let us know what 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 have you got coming up, job work wise or article wise or. Uh, at the moment, the next thing that's coming up now is a book in Swedish. We started writing a book, of, uh, like a series of books, because Swedish young fellas of sort of, you know, teenagers, they've only ever read Zlatan's book. So a couple of years ago, we started writing uh, novels. We we made this club. It's like taking a, a like a, a fictional club and putting them into the League of Ireland. We took a fictional club and we put it into the Swedish League here. So the first book came out a few years ago and the follow-up is coming out now. We had a legal battle with the first publisher and that's all over now. So the second book is coming out next year. Phil, so that's being Phil, written at I've, the moment. Yeah. I've, have you just took basically the Harchester United story and put it into paperback? Look, <laughs> all artists steal. That's how it works. <laughs> but it was actually, it was really funny because uh, when we wrote this book, he's not going to bleed and kill me now because the podcast going to be about four hours long. But, um, <laughs> There was this, uh, like, uh, we wrote the book. The first book we wrote is about match fixing, right? So it's about this kid who comes from an area, like, say, Clondalkin in Dublin, right? And he has the choice. He's brought into this professional setup, right? But he, and he starts to play games. So he'd be on, like, a YTS contract, an apprenticeship or whatever. And then, you know, in a cup game, he gets to take a penalty and he smashes it into the back of the net. And all of a sudden, he starts to get his game because a fella gets injured. And then, you know, he becomes the penalty taker of the team. But then he gets offered money to miss a penalty. Right. So the moral dilemma here is, does he miss the penalty because his ma is sick and she has MS and they need to pay the money because you know there's a stack of bills on the table and she can never pay and it's just getting higher. So does he take the money off these lads or does he fucking do the, you know, what some people would say the right thing and does he fucking score the goal and hope then to go on and play for Manchester United or whoever else, right? So when we're writing the last chapter of this book, we wrote the book, I wrote it with a Kurdish lad or a Kurdish-Swedish lad who lives like one stop in the underground for me in Hoosby and we brought it into a school and we said, we've written this book now you get to decide the last chapter. So the kids in the class had to decide if he was going to take the money or if he was going to score the penalty in this fucking really, really important match, right? And lads, I've never seen that like it. If you've seen a bunch of 15-year-olds more, of course you should take the fucking money. Family comes first, you look after your man, this kind of thing, you know? And then the rest yeah. of them are going, yeah, but if he does that and if he gets found out, he's blown it, man. He'll never play football again, you know? And the absolute brilliant thing was that at the end of it, they were split. There were 18 kids and they were split into six groups of three and it was split 50-50. So we were able to go away then and we were able to fucking finish the book ourselves. But it was a fantastic exercise to see how engaged they got in the whole process. So the next book is about bullying. So that's being written at the moment. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff that's coming up. Like I was making a documentary about a Swedish uh, uh, female soccer player and that kind of thing. So it's ah, just mad. But I'm hoping to get over actually for the Cage Warriors card, which is on a cork this weekend. So there might be a sneaky trip down there that might actually this podcast might not uh, might not be out by the time i get over there but uh we'll see i'll have to come back over at some point uh towards christmas then as well and see what we can do there but yeah keep Absolutely. busy still preaching this fucking social justice warrior gospel as i go you know <laughs> Good, great to hear it's been a pleasure I, talking yeah. to you as always an absolute waffler <laughs> i love i love the fact that you essentially went into a school and caused a hunger games phil that's brilliant that's fair play to you More and you know that. what and you know what? we're going to do exactly the same thing with the next book like i said <laughs> if it ain't broke don't fix it danny no. uh, yeah do you know what it's a great idea man fair play and, and congrats on that and i hope that the next one goes well uh it's it's an exercise i think that could uh that could easily be replicated in terms of going into schools and even just getting kids talking about that kind of stuff is a fucking good move man so fair play on that one 
But you know what? It's, it's all about reading because everything I've been talking to you about this evening, it comes back to reading and being literate. And if you don't read, you can't know the world around you. And that's the thing. The most important thing, read your kids, read your friends, buy them fucking books for Christmas. Paddy Hoolan's a great book out. Richie Sadler's a great book out. Meryl will probably have a book out about how he won the fucking cup final for Rovers soon enough, you know? So that'll be my tip for, for the Christmas shopping. <laughs> I was going to say, the unfortunate thing is Meryl can't read. So uh, we'll leave it there. <laughs> Wouldn't be the first man who can't read to write a book. <laughs> Thanks so uh, much, Phil. Phil, absolute pleasure, man. Thank you very much for your time. Cheers, lads. All the best. See you later. Great value for money with Phil because absolutely he, he doesn't like he throws punches and bunches. Do you know what I mean? He doesn't just give you like one or two sentences for an answer. He fucking goes like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I knows, love yeah. that. And he speaks with passion, and he speaks with just fucking pure, just fucking everything comes from fucking somewhere deep inside where it just has feeling behind that and you feel as though he can never fucking get enough of it and I love that and he didn't it was great great to hear that he didn't take Gayborn's advice exactly <laughs> yeah one, one of the few times Gay got it wrong I'd say I'd love to have a chat with Phil like for three or four hours but like that's just too long of a podcast but that's it, how it much it is yeah it is that, that would be we there are very few podcasts that get away running at that kind of length. We are not one of them. Um, yeah. Joe Rogan and those conspiracy guys are probably the two that uh, can get away with running that long. Are we not Joe Rogan lies? Uh, according to one <laughs> reviewer, uh, yes, yes, we are. Where Joe, what was it, Joe Rogan light who has been sipping on the tell it as it is juice? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the fuck does it? I mean, um. That, that's the latest review on Apple Podcasts for anybody wondering, lads. And if 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 you're listening and you care to correct Tech Boy seventy seven or Tech Bro seventy seven rather, then uh, you can do so by by checking out Apple Podcasts, downloading the podcast there, and leaving a little review for us. Um, you you can also get the podcast on Spotify. You can also get the podcast on Stitcher, Podbean, Podcast for Public, Podcast Addict, anywhere and everywhere there's a podcast, including WTSPod.com. Just search for WTSPod and you'll find us. We're going to ignore the fact that I fluffed me lines a tiny bit in there, Mero. Um, and you can also get us on the Twitter machine at WTSPod. He's at American Mania. I'm at Dan Joe Murray. Um, and don't forget to check out our man in Stockholm, Phil O'Connor, because he is a, an interesting character with a wealth of knowledge and he would walk rings around 90% of the people who try to challenge him in subject matter. And, 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 I, and, and not only is he a waffler in audio, he's a waffler in tweets as well, so check him out. <laughs> um, you, yeah, you, you finished your lines there now and I'll finish my lines by congratulating the greatest, greatest team on the island the most successful team on the island 17 leagues 25 FEI Cups huge congratulations to Stephen Bradley and Shamrock Rovers for winning a long overdue FEI Cup on Sunday it was the greatest day of my life until next time Danny I would just like to add to that until next time Danny congratulations to my friends in South Africa and our listeners in South Africa, who won the world's biggest tournament one day prior to this Mickey Mouse Cup Graham Merrigan is talking about. And I would just like to say that William Webb Ellis looks a damn sight better than Johannesburg than it would in London. Thank you. Shamrock Rovers, I love you. Until next time. Clear eyes. Go hearts. Go hearts.
can't lose.